Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Together, we welcome you to the Butterfly Forecast. Oh man, this is so great to be together. Yeah. Where are you, Justin? I'm in our tiny house. Where is your tiny house? Oh, it's on our property. We're in Ojai now. Oh, sweet. Hey, can I, I want to read you guys this. I'm sure you've read this. This is, uh, Baha'u'llah says, it is enjoined upon all those who perform any act to utter these words at the time of action. Have you heard this? No. Verily, I do this for God, the Lord of the heavens and the earth, the Lord of all that is seen and unseen, the Lord of creation. Should he recite in his heart, his action would be rewarded as a result. Oh, this is from the Bob. This is in the Persian Bayan. Wow, I've never heard that. So I'm now saying that before I do any anything. Oh, so beautiful. Thank you. And you know, I love that too, because everybody has good intentions, if you asked anybody. But what we lack is that kind of agency, you know, that transports something from just setting an intention to actually interacting with the world around us. I love that. That's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. Mel, I haven't seen you in forever. I know. Well, I haven't seen anybody since the this <laughs> pandemic. So well before I think even before that it's been yeah, years even before that. Actually, Justin, we were just talking about how um is a specially sweet podcast for us because we don't just get to have a discussion with somebody, but somebody both of us have been friends with independently, you know, individually for years. For- so long because we can recall all the stages or so many stages that you've been through. (laughs) (laughs) Justin, any, like the triad today of this conversation, any one of us could ask the others a million questions. Well, wait, how did you go from this to that? And then what inspired you to take a left turn? And so I love this because it's very equal and balanced. I was so uh, excited when you asked. I was just bummed that I couldn't do it and before when we were in Sweden. But I was also I was also happy because one of the things that I've been working on is actually listening and being like, oh, because I always just want to say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. That's my initial response. I'm like, yes, 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 of course, yes. And then <laughs> inevitably our lives are sometimes mine at least is like a house of cards. And so when you say mm. yes to everything, it's just like, Mm. Uh, Wait, but do you really want to say yes to everything? To people I love, I do. Okay. Mm. And you love that many people. No, I. (laughs) it's like when, you know, a lot of people that you're close to ask for things Mm -hmm. because we're all trying to figure this out together. You know, especially for you two, I would do anything. Thanks, Justin. Right back at you. That's sweet. Yeah, I remember when I was at this stage in my business. And I had talked to Julie and she was like, you know, it feels like at the beginning of your business, you were sort of like a baby where, you know, how babies are just fascinated with everything. And I'm like, yes, I'll do that. Sure. I'll do this. I'll do that. And then I think I got to my toddler stage where my favorite (laughs) word was no. And anytime anybody asked me to do something, I was like, no, I don't want to do that. (laughs) 
but it's, yeah, it's to- different when you love people. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's different when it's, when it, I don't know. I'm, I'm also a bit of a, always, I think, be a people pleaser in mm. that way because of the way I was raised and my childhood trauma and wanting to be liked and accepted. So I think that there'll always be a part of me that just wants to say yes. And I'll feel like saying no is disappointing to that person. Mm. Despite my um, masculinity drowning out my empathy, I'm extremely empathetic, mm. even though I don't realize it sometimes. And so mm. when I feel like I disappoint somebody, I feel it and then I feel bad. So that's a very tricky thing also about becoming a, a semi-public figure is you just have to, you have to say no to far more than you say yes. And sometimes you have to say no to people you love. Yes. And that's really tricky, but, I don't, but there's not a world in which I would ever say no to, to Julie Walker. You're the sweetest. Wait, so how does that work being a people pleaser and then being a public figure and knowing that you can't please everyone? Uh, ask my therapist. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I love that concept because, Justin, you seem to have a lot of natural energy and you seem to be production-oriented. And and what I mean by that is you love to accomplish things, you know, for others or improve whatever you've done or you're always moving towards betterment. And... Is that true? Yes. Emphasis on I'm always moving. And (laughs) what I'm working on now is stillness. Mm. That's the next phase of my journey. You know, I'm 37 now and I have not stopped. I'm kind Mm. of like a, I'm a shark, right? And this, you just are always swimming, always swimming, always swimming to the detriment of your own health. Sometimes the problem for me has been the conflation between work and service because when your work is service you will always justify the need to do more Hmm. and it's 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 really it's natural because it's no it's not about you right it's not Mm -hmm. oh i just need to pay that bill or i need to make this much money or it's it's not even about career it's this person's living or dying i got to tell their story they don't have much time left And as you know, as you know, with my films or whatever it is, I've picked lanes where that line is very blurry. And so even in marriage and things, it's, it's been something that Emily and I always talk about, which is, well, how do we decide when to pause or no, you can't do that because there's a part of both of us that's like, no, but this is for bigger purpose. This is for a higher cause. Cause it was never about money. I was broke forever. (laughs) Yes. So that's the tricky thing is that difference between the two. So now between saying no more, between um, trying to figure out how to be still, which is my new goal, which is why I quit. I don't know uh, if Julie told you, Julie and I talked yesterday, Mel, I'm 27 days off caffeine now. I haven't had had caffeine. I haven't had coffee. As I'm drinking mine. (laughs) No, but I honestly have been using it. It's been a drug for me to maintain an energy that isn't human. And uh, I looked around at one point about a month ago and everybody around me that works directly with me was exhausted. Mm. And that's not right. And here I am just drinking coffee all day long and night long and doing, doing, doing and being productive. And I think that I don't want the label anymore of he works harder than anyone I know. He just, he works, he works. I don't know how he does so much. I don't want that anymore. I think socially, we reward people who kill themselves for work. Yes. As, and we reward robots. 
And it's terrible. I think it's killing us. It's been terrible for me. I've done great work. I've helped a lot of people, but it's not good for me. And so I, I don't want to be known as that person anymore. And it's not good for the next generation because when that's what is modeled, then we only know and start to believe that that's what we're meant to do. And that's a dangerous area to step Super into. Dangerous. Mm-hmm. Super dangerous. I was wondering what we were going to end up talking about when we started. There's so much to talk about, guys. <laughs> Mel's married. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. <laughs> do you guys remember this? What was it 10 years ago? I remember bringing Emily when we were just dating mm-hmm. to yes. Mel. Was it at your mom's house? Yeah. It was at your mom's house. I think she was slightly disappointed because she wanted to set us up. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I saw her, she's like, have you seen Melody recently? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember I brought Emily. I'll never forget this because after that workshop, we were in the car leaving and I told her I loved her for the first time. Mm. And it went like this. I think I'm in love with you. To her saying, huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really sweet. And I was like, what? Then I looked at her. And I'm like, I just said, I think I'm in love with you. And I, for a second, didn't realize that to a Swedish person whose first language wasn't English, saying, I think I'm in love with you is, is not being sure if I am. Mm. So no, I'm like, no, no, I love you. And then she's like, oh. and then it was really sweet. And it was like, oh my God, I love you too. And then she said it back. But for a second, it was like one of those like proposals where it doesn't end well. <laughs> And we had just gone through this couple of days of Julie just opening our hearts up. And it was just this amazing weekend and uh, opened her up. And, and I just, that was just one of the memories that came back as I look at the two of your faces right now. Because we, I don't think we've been really in the same space or shared space like this in, or maybe ever. Well, we, we would be in little corners if we were at workshops or something for a moment. And Julie's the celebrity where everybody just wants a minute of her time. And I don't know how you do it. Look who's talking. But what I do love about that history, and remember you called me right after that, right after you said that to Emily. And what's funny is that that's not just Swedish culture. (laughs) That's that's our culture too. I think I'm in love with you. Doesn't quite work. No, it didn't. And I was so nervous to say it. And uh, I realized like, oh, I should have just come out and been like, I love you. Well, and that's a very courageous move anyway. The first time you say how you feel to your person, who you want to be your person. I think that's the most courageous thing a person can do because it also invites vulnerability. Which, who said I love you first with both of you? Sushi, you go. Um, you know what? Actually, I think it was me and it was by accident because you know how sometimes you're just like, okay, I love you. Bye. So I think I was leaving his house one time and I was like, okay, love you. Bye. And I was like, oh, and then we both started laughing. And then he was like, I love you too. You literally like, just described a scene in, oh. that we shot in Jane the Virgin. I'm going to send it to you right oh, afterwards. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was what it was. It was kind of by accident. And then, but it was funny because afterwards I had to be like, wait, do I? I mean, I love him, but am I in love with him? <laughs> and then luckily we, we kind of developed into it, but. What about you and Ra? So good. Well, Ra. Him, totally him. Not only that, but he said, I love you. And I hadn't really gone that far yet. 
like in, in my being. I think I was just careful. And I said, I love you too. I was trying to make it casual, like friendly. Like a buddy. I love you too. Be, yeah, I love you too. And then he, he said, no, I'm in love with you. Are you in love with me? And I was like, Dang, confrontation. <laughs> was very direct. <laughs> yeah, he was always very direct from the beginning because, you know, I just really wanted to take it so slow. And as you both know, I really did drag it down to a snail's pace. Oh, he knew from the beginning. Ra was like, no, this is my person. Yeah, but I was trying to just say, let's let's not put pressure on like that. Let's just get to know each other and take our time and and see what it can unfold as. And so um, I said to him, let's just be really good friends for a while. And he said, I don't need any more friends. Mm. I don't want to be a friend. I, lo- <laughs> so he, I, gotta, he I love that. Everything down. I love that he did that. You do? It's like, do not friend zone me. Yes. <laughs> well, but if you think about it, it's really important that men actually say right off the bat what their intention is, because that's one of the reasons why I think we have this misnomer that women and men can't be friends Mm. because men have an ulterior motive and a hidden agenda. And women are just like, I really like friends. I really like the company. I really like talking to you. And a man is just like, no, I want to be with you, but he doesn't say it. Mm. And then he says it a year later, two years later, or he sees the person date someone else. And I love that he does is like, no, 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 no. This is it. Mm. Like, You know, that whole concept of like men and women can't be friends are really interesting to me because I was thinking about it growing up and my mom never had male friends and my dad never had female friends. And when you, whenever I think about it in that context, it would be so weird if like my dad had girlfriends that he hung out with. So it's, it's so interesting how it's changed so much in just one generation. And I really wonder what that looks like, because even though I have a lot of male friends, they've now become my husband's friends as well. That's the key though. I think Mel. Yeah. I think when you're, when you're married, that's the key. Right. Okay. Well, but then why can't, what's the difference between you being married and you not? Then is it really possible for you to have friends without any hint of something else? Well, no, I think it's definitely possible. hundred percent. I have empirical data over the course of my life. I mean, yeah. I have far more female friends than male and none of it's sexual. Well, on the, your end. On my end. And this is where it's tricky. Mm-hmm. And look, and the, and the reason why I think historically your parents, and I think my parents too, experienced was I think the woman will always be on the lookout for that with her radar of no, there's something more there. Mm. No, you don't see it. You're blind. Cause Emily said mm. that to me a few times. Mm. You don't see it. She wants more. Mm. Um, and the man just doesn't trust any man because all we do as men socially is stab each other in the back. The second we get a chance, even great friendships. I mean, how many times have we heard or seen in movies and TV, but heard in real life, like, Oh, cheated on with the best friend, cheated on with the best friend, right. Developed those secret relations. It happens all the time. Mm. So What I believe is that when you marry, just like, and I'm sure some people don't, but you merge bank accounts sometimes, Um, you merge assets, you you become one in many ways. At least the Baha'i idea of it is that it's two people becoming one with God in the middle, Uh, something bigger than yourselves in the middle. I think it's the same thing. Like our friends, her friends become mine, my friends become hers. Sure, she'll keep some friends that are 
hers. But eventually, as we know in marriage, like the friends that are kind of on the perimeter don't really stick around. You see them once a year, every six months or once every two years, but your close circle of friends really become yours. Because when you're building a family and when you're doing, you don't have time to like be social and go out and do things. You become, it becomes your friend. Mm. And so one of the things that I've done is every single female friend of mine prior to Emily immediately be like, it's just like, this is my wife. Or if I meet somebody and it's a female and I'm like, oh, we could definitely be friends. I automatically introduce her to my wife. Maybe there are a lot of relationships where people keep those things. I don't know. I mean, for me, it just, our community is our community and our friends are our friends. Um, Absolutely. Well, I, I think it's complicated mostly because of history. First of all, we don't understand that the purpose of marriage is the link in society. So marriage essentially is the sacred link that holds things together. Uh, so if we understood that, we would treat people who are in a marriage or a relationship towards marriage differently rather than assess what's weak there and what we could exploit for our own gain. So no matter if it's a good marriage or a bad marriage or whatever, that's not up to an outside source to assess. It is established, so we need to strengthen those links. And therefore, friendships should only serve to strengthen people. I mean, what is a true friend anyway? Every friend I have, I introduce to Ra immediately. But that's not to say he is as close to some friends as I am, or vice versa. He has friends that I know of, but I don't spend time with because it just hasn't ever come about in all these years. But I don't have a problem with it. Now, myself, I have experienced my whole life where someone declares, a male declares themselves as a friend, but I feel pheromones coming off of them. And then I will no longer be what I thought we were on my end of it because it jeopardizes my primary relationship with my husband. So I I don't want to invite that in. Not that I think I'm vulnerable to anything, to expressing anything, but why would I even call that a friend anymore? To that point, though, there's also the strength of the female intuition. I agree with that, but it's, I think that a lot of men actually don't trust that intuition sometimes. They're like, oh, you're crazy. But there's also, I think even as a woman, you have to be super clear because anytime there's a feeling, it's valid, but then identifying what that feeling actually is or where it's coming from is also requires a sense of clarity and knowing of yourself so that you're pointing your sort of compass in the right direction. Cause sometimes Mm -hmm. it could be jealousy or, you know, it could be something else that might interfere. So I think it's clarity and trust. Like, I feel like you really have to build Mm -hmm. trust in that relationship to kind of have that balance between the two people. And transparency. I don't think we're very good yet at, feeling so secure in our choices that we can afford ourselves total transparency with our mate and also total transparency with our friend. Because if you're putting out split signals, then that keeps a kind of a small door open for maybe future problems. 
for example, share what you're not satisfied with in your primary bond with your mate to a quote-unquote friend, that can be used as leverage to exploit it. So I think another, this transparency thing makes it easier. For example, I know when I first, when Ra and I first established our relationship as a relationship moving towards marriage, because of his background and his natural, I nicknamed him Detective Ra, you know, his natural spidey senses are up 24-7. And if we were walking down the street, <laughs> we were just passing a couple males, he would jump out and give them a little confrontation. I was like, what is happening? And he's just warning them off. Don't even think about her. And now I'm not from that background. My dad's a a peacekeeper. He's passive. We call him the Zen master. But what really has changed over the years remarkably is the trust between Ra and I has grown to the point where he can ask me, did you see something going on there? Because I felt that. And he, he has the freedom to check in. Are you feeling safe? Is this cool? Or why don't you use your funny eyeballs and tell me, is something going on there? And if I say no, he just breathes. And I'm like, wow, this is so good. Yeah. I use Emily. I use Emily's eyeballs. She's got her, she's got really strong eyeballs. And I think it, I think it's all the the trust thing is interesting because you have to develop it and it's only developed with action. And I think that a lot of us men leak, we leak energy, Mm. specifically sexual energy. Mm. And I know that's something I specifically have been very, very, very strict about in my life, because you're always going to find people attractive in the world. Mm-hmm. This idea that that once you get married, you just don't have eyes for anybody doesn't exist. It's not real. There's always going to be people that you find physically attractive. I think our brains are wired to appreciate beauty. Mm-hmm. The difference is, is that what you do with that beauty. And I don't know, and I can only speak for men, as men have been taught to um, contain that energy. We, so I think we leak it. And sometimes it feels good to leak it. Sometimes it feels good to to be wanted or to have somebody feel attracted to you. And I think it's a very important practice to contain it because we all know if you you can turn it on or turn it off, you can spend a little too long flirting or make eye contact a little too long. And, And so for Emily and I, I have just, from the time I met her, just been focused on never leaking that energy out in the Mm. world, no matter what's happening Mm. at home, no matter if we uh, were in an argument or whatever. And uh, that's been really key for me because then there's no, you're you're closed off. There's no opportunity for somebody to come into your, uh, as we say in the writings, like fortress, which is really what I view a marriage as. It's a fortress. When Baha'u'llah says a fortress for well-being and salvation, Mm-hmm. which means you build it together from the inside out to protect the things coming at you from the outside. Absolutely. And that has to be rebuilt and rebuilt together because those winds are going to knock stuff down and uh, you're going to have a lot of incoming, oncoming attacks. And who knows, sometimes people destroy their fortresses from the inside, but you got to build it together. And that's been my end is just never leaking energy. So I don't think it's an issue with the female-male friendships. However, if there is a woman that comes into our life and Emily's like, "Uh, I don't trust it, boom, cut off. Mm -hmm. Why would I ever fight for that? Well, and it's also an interesting segue because with all the things that you want to create, 
Just like you want to create a marriage from the very beginning, but you know you're going to have to build the foundation first and then fill it in. And then what does that look like for you? What's the foundation for you guys? Because you've done so many things like an actor. And then where do you segue? Why do you go from being an actor to writing? What would make a person do that or directing or producing? Oh, well... You know the answer to this. You've looked at me so many times with your crazy eyeballs. But I look, this is something that I think about all the time because all of these things, these career things, these different, you know, whether whether I'm producing a movie or directing a movie or acting in something or, you know, with the book that I just wrote, whatever it is that's happening in the world, all of these things take time. And mm-hmm. I sometimes just get so mad at God because I think time is such a mean joke. He's like, I'm going to give you the world, but you can't see it all. <laughs> I'm going to give you the, uh, the drive and the ambition to do all the things you want to do and passions and curiosity, but you don't have time to do them all. Hmm. So time is, I believe, it's our most valuable resource. It's the foundation of my work and my company is, but yet it, I oftentimes find myself stuck in this gray area where sometimes I'm not giving my time to the things that I really want to be giving my time to because of the way I believe our patriarchal system and society is set up because of the way that the world operates, because there's a need to make money and to uh, provide, there's this constant imbalance that I'm constantly looking to fix and find. And so Emily and I talk about it all the time, which is, okay, what's the cost of doing this? Hmm. What's the cost of writing a book? What's the cost of when I go direct this next film? And I have to look at it and say, is it, is it actually worth being away from my family for that long? Sure, I'm going to make a piece of art that could touch millions of people, but is it worth not seeing my kids? So it is something I'm constantly thinking about. And how do I decide? I don't know. I always say that one of God's greatest jokes he played on me was that I don't necessarily always think through the uh, risks of doing something. I Mm -hmm. just get inspired and I feel that my heart feels drawn to it. And I don't think it through. I just kind of decide we're going to do it. It's like jumping out of a plane, but not having the parachute on. Mm. It's not sustainable, but I will tell you, it's never from my head. And I think that's some of the reason why it works. And it's been, I've been able to, to experience success. The work that I've done has been able to really touch so many people. The problem is when you do, then you're just, you're doing too much. When do you stop? To your point, I remember um, I was staying with Melody is a long time ago. And Justin calls me and he goes, want to go for a drive? And I was like, where? And you were like, I don't know, on expressway. Let's just drive where nobody can interrupt us. That was my first exposure to the 405. And I, I remember was, being on the 405 with you. That yes. I remember. <laughs> I was like, oh, why are we here? We're not moving. We're just in so much traffic. And Justin starts sharing. He's like bubbling over like he can't contain it, these ideas for three films, one of which became Five Feet Apart. Justin, I don't know if you remember this, but it's so incredible because I was thinking at the time, they're already formed. I remember thinking, oh, these are full, fully formed concepts. All he needs is some money behind it, and this thing is going to go. But what I thought was interesting is from then on, I began to think, us oh, what he does. And Sushi, you do the same thing. 
Like a year before something comes out or six months before, I see it on your board in the background. You're formulating colors, ideas, themes. Before you did your inner space series, and you've got these spaceships and these really cool sci-fi outfits. And they're, do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And they were at your old studio across the street from your store. And I looked at them, I'm like, what is this? Why does she have like old Star Trek outfits on people? But then you explained it to me and I thought, oh my gosh, it's all here. And then when she finally produced it, everybody was ready by then. And I think the same is true for your film, Justin, that film. By the time you finish making it, people were ready for it. Isn't that incredible? What pulls you in a certain direction when you won't let go of an idea? How do you guys think it, but how do you think the inspiration works? Because Julie, you see it. And obviously, Mel, you and I are both artists, but where does that inspiration come from? I always have this feeling that those who have departed, those who have passed on, those who are like our guides and our our friends in the next world are just constantly whispering in my ear. And then you capture a percentage of that? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) I feel like I capture a percentage of it. It depends on if I'm listening or not, because I know it doesn't come from me. I want to know what your eyeballs say. Where does it come from? Um, You know, I think that there's so many different things you can call it. You know, whether it's ancestors or energy or I, but whatever it is, I definitely think that it comes from an invisible realm or frequency or something that you have to be tapped into where you receive some kind of information. And I think that that same information is accessible to everyone else that's in the same place as you and is open to it. And Mm. it's just about filtering that then through your, unique design, you know? So, so it's like a, so it's like a radio. Yeah. You just pop into the frequency and it's broadcasting and you and I can get the same frequency at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what trends, I mean, at least fashion for me, fashion trends are things that I'm tuned into. That's what I've noticed. It's like every year, every season, you can see who's sort of picking up on the same kinds of things, whether it be mm. materials or concepts, or it's like all of a sudden three or four different designers that are tuned into the same thing, but it's very clear that they had no knowledge of of the the other. other. It's just that they picked up on it and they interpreted it in their own way, which is so cool too. So cool. I love that. I'm insane and endlessly curious about Einstein's theory of simultaneity, which describes this very thing Melody was sharing, where knowledge is all available at the right time, at the same time, everywhere. So like, for example, Edison was not the first to invent uh, the light bulb or discover electricity. It happened in many places at the same time. But That's true artistically and also conceptually. And how come we don't go beyond the theory of simultaneity to ask why? Why is this phenomenon present all the time? And why aren't more people tapping into that? And I really think that planetarily, it's like birth contractions. We've spent so much time, you know, warring and uh, accentuating our differences and like the false identities that come from fear that are born from ignorance to prevent us from working together collectively in the most extraordinary 
creative endeavor we have yet to produce, which is using a planet to its fullest capacity and embracing a species as it really is scientifically. And these kind of trends that happen are so remarkable because more and more people go, wow, did you see that? We don't have a problem when it's something like the Northern Lights, you know. If everyone sees the Aurora Borealis at the same time, everyone is in awe. I think that's what we're doing. We're, we're having these contractions of awe to pull us together. Mm, I love that. I love that too. I want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was thinking about ourselves and what we do and our physical bodies. Because Justin, since you shared your personal victory and being caffeine-free, do you feel different in your body as a vehicle to be you? Yeah, you know, I can very easily find myself drawn into the material world mm. because I, um, I think I'm, I have a predisposition to being excited easily. And, um, you know, they call it ADD. I don't believe it's a deficit. I think it's a superpower. That's my, mm. that's my thing. But I can distract myself with things like caffeine and other things like work, right? I mean, even for men, especially, there's an actual pandemic with work addiction. <laughs> it's not a pandemic, it's an epidemic. We work ourselves to death to stop ourselves from feeling all the things that we need to feel. And I have done all of these things. And I, as you know, Julie, oftentimes don't even know what's happening in my body because I don't feel stress very often until something breaks down in my body. Until mm. I get a herniated disc in my lower back, like I got a, you know, six weeks ago or seven weeks ago until... Mm, um, but I don't feel what's happening sometimes in my body. And for me, getting off caffeine just this last month was I'm so tired of being numb to what I'm actually feeling because I'm married to a woman who spends her days and nights on this incredible, passionate exploration of her trauma and who she is in her starting place is not her brain. It's her body. Mm. entry is her body and I'm the opposite when I go to therapy it's like how are you feeling and I always have to stop and be like I don't know this is part of the socialization I believe of men this is part of the masculinity conundrum which I write about in my book and so I'm really trying to figure out what do I feel what do I actually feel because nobody has really asked me that I have not been encouraged to ask myself how do I feel and that goes back to the earlier thing about saying yes or no how do I actually yes. feel about it? Yes. Yeah. We're not taught that. We're either like all no's or all yeses. And, and so I just wanted to feel. And that's what I'm working on in my therapy. Emily and I are doing this really cool retreat. We're going to our good friend, uh, Dr. John Amaral. He does that beautiful energy work. We're going to a retreat with him. And so everything in our lives is feeling, starting with our body. Um, and I can tell you, since I got off caffeine, I didn't know I had energy. I thought there was something wrong with me medically that I was tired all the time. And I just had to keep drinking coffee. And, you know, I got three hours of sleep last night because our kids are jet lagged and I was up with them and I'm okay. I'm talking to you. I normally would have down like two shots of espresso or a latte right before I'm like, all right, I got to get that caffeine buzz right before I talk to them. These are two brilliant women. I want to be on it. And I'm okay showing up as I am right now. Now, who knows if this will last, but I can feel my aches and pains. I can feel my body. I'm doing a lot more breath work. 
And I realized I don't need caffeine to keep me going right now. I don't need caffeine to give me inspiration. Caffeine doesn't give me inspiration. My openness to God and that frequency that you talked about, Mel, is what gives me inspiration, not a drug. Mm. So that's the way you access awareness of your vehicle because this body is the vehicle to everything we do. It's stripping Mm. away the things that are preventing. It's the armor. It's the armor I write about a man enough. It's, Mm. I just want to be, I want to feel. Yeah. Well, by the way, congratulations on Man Enough. What an incredible trailblazing book you've written and also pioneering in many ways, you know, things we don't talk about in society. You know, you brought out all the taboos that men are not allowed to talk about and women are not supposed to know about about men. So I just want to honor you and thank you. And how does it feel? (laughs) I'm laughing so much. in the people, world. Are, people are listening right now. I'm laughing and I'm, I mean, you don't know this, but I it was, there was weekly, am I crazy? Every time I talked to you, am I, why should I do this? Is this crazy? <laughs> I shouldn't do this, right? Looking for anything from Julie to get anything to say, no, you shouldn't do this. Mm. And she kept being like, no, do it. And I kept hoping she would say, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. <laughs> uh, how does it feel? It feels like I birthed something. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's, shockingly and also yet unsurprisingly still early. And it's so disappointing also in that, but it's also the right time in that, you know, this conversation is so needed. It's the other half of feminism. Our liberations are tied together, but we don't, but yet men still aren't open and ready. The majority of men, but I am seeing so many more men that are receptive much more than in 2017 when Mm. I did, when I did a Ted talk. Right. So it's just really, it's really interesting. It's confusing. It's anytime you birth something, Mel, I don't know if you feel this way with your, with your designs, but it's like, uh, there's joy and there's also, oh, I just, this is, this can be judged now. Mm. And when it's a Mm -hmm. book and you're literally writing about yourself and your socialization and your, your things that uh, I should be concealing because that's what we should do that. I'm not concealing that I'm, I'm sharing with men to invite them into their stories it's a very tricky thing because you're, it's not a movie. It's not like, oh, he, could, he didn't direct that well. It's no, we don't like him. And that's the scary part about the book stuff. In your ideal context, like in your ideal vision, the ultimate effect the book would have on consciousness it doesn't matter about numbers. It's not numerical. It's, you know, how every movement travels, travels by word of mouth because it opens up incredibly meaningful conversations. Like what's your ideal hope that it attains or does what? It's a really good question. I went on a journey with this because again, I felt I should write it. Then I didn't want to because I knew what it would take. And I've been up and down and I reached a point where I was able to really let go. And that was when I thought about what, what is the effect that one man can have on the world? And the amount of women that ever, that a man, any man, Joe in Minnesota, the amount of women that that man interacts with on a daily basis, if Joe has children, and then the people that his children will interact with over the course of their lives, or his wife, or his partner, or, or whatever, you can't even calculate that number. Mm. And it's very tricky to live today where all of the emphasis is on an external result. It's on a number. It's on a, it's on a, an award. It's on a list. Your book is successful. Your, your fashion creation is successful. Your, 
podcast is successful, your movie is successful if it gets on this list, if this person writes about it, if you sell this much, if whatever it is. And I think that that's the unfortunate uh, part of the movie business where art and commerce are intersect and impact is oftentimes forgotten about. Hmm. And so what, what I came to was a man, one man, if the Buddha says like, you know, one candle can light thousands, why am I focused so much on all of these external accolades when really I wrote this book for one person, me? Mm-hmm. I wrote it for me and I wrote it for the one man who was like me that needed the book. And that set me free because the publisher, mm. which you will experience, will start to drill into your head all that matters are lists, the list, the list, the list. Luckily, I have a great publisher and they were wonderful, but it's all about the New York Times list. And so I lost track for a second because they were having me do all this publicity, all this. And I was just like exhausted. And I came to the realization a couple nights before the book came out. I'm like, I need to be liberated from this. <laughs> now I've created an, a whole new set of expectations for myself that if I don't hit, I'm going to be disappointed. When in reality, I didn't write the book for a list. And interestingly enough, I prayed about it. I wrote the whole team an email and come to find out the week it got released, the only thing they cared about was New York Times. Get on the bestseller list. We got to get on the bestseller list. But what they don't tell you is then you got to keep it there. There's always Mm. disappointment. But New York Times decided to classify my book, not as nonfiction, which the book is, as self-help. And I didn't make the New York Times list. And I had a moment where I was like, I knew this was coming. There was something about this that I felt I was prepared for. I had a moment of like, oh, I let everybody down. Hmm. And then they tell me like, well, it was supposed to be nonfiction. You would have been number two. Great. Doesn't matter. I still feel like I let let everybody down because they poured all this money into it, all this stuff. And I realized that it was not about that. So I let it go. And then I start getting messages from one man here, Hmm. from one man here, weeping, crying. I see myself. I'm going to talk to my wife tonight. Couples are reading it together. And that's all that matters. But Mm -hmm. the world, the way it's set up, doesn't tell you that. Mm -hmm. But all of us artists are only doing it because we want to affect change. We want to touch people. We want to make people, Mel, I'm sure you, you want to make people feel good and beautiful and confident in themselves. We want to help people see themselves. Who decides what a list is? Who decides what a box office number is? Like, is that everything? What if someone finds it 10 years from now? And it has mm-hmm. a whole cultural moment. So that's where I am with the book. And it's really sweet. It's just picking up steam every week. And I'm, more and more men, surprisingly, are reading it. And it just touches me. And I, and I, hope, that it, I hope that it continues to touch men. That's amazing. Um, it just kind of made me think of so many things as you were talking about that. But one of them is this whole idea of service being tied into you know, our lives as like service is work and work is service. There is no differentiation, but then there's also this concept of being an artist, which is really just your responsibility to ask the questions and have your truest form of expression. So it's this interesting thing where when you create art you kind of can't think about what the outcome is and you can't associate it with you can't take credit for the service of it in advance. And it's this huge leap of faith you have to take every time you create something that mm-hmm. you hope that it'll be of service, but you actually don't know what that would will look like. And you can't create it 
with the expectation that it's going to serve. That's the thing about service is that it's supposed to be secret. It's supposed to be your gift, your service. And it's not supposed to be something that everybody sees or becomes anything. Like when you are truly in service, there it's not goal or result oriented. Mm-hmm. And same with your work though. Oftentimes in my work, I have a whole list of clients where nobody in the world that's part of the confidentiality agreement, nobody will ever know that they are my client and that we work together. And I've even passed them in public places or crowds, and I pretend I don't know them, and they are grateful for it. And we just pass each other like that, and there's no acknowledgement. However, I will have that rare privilege of listening to them give a speech or do something that they couldn't do before. And they will bring out the very thing that came out in the work. And that is my moment. Nobody will know. It's not never going to be acknowledged. And it doesn't matter. I know. And I think that's really, truly at the heart of work and service, and actually at the heart of love, full circle to even talking about Emily. You know, when you identify, I love you, Emily, actually that's a revelation and a gift to yourself because to experience love is like nothing else. And even before the person, you don't even know if they see you, much less have feelings for you. But when you like share with a friend, if when you're a child and you tell your best friend, oh my gosh, I love that person. And they go, you do? And then you happen to see that person at a distance. It just made your day. That's it. <laughs> that person didn't even see you. That person doesn't know you exist, but it doesn't matter because you have love. And I think that's really primary to keep that alive, that fire burning, whether it's in the path of service or work or any relationship or even just a conversation that goes nowhere. When you don't make one list, Justin, guarantee you're on a whole lot of other lists. And sometimes those spread faster. Or the list that nobody will ever see. Mm. Exactly what you just said is all of the things, and this is where I think we're in trouble and we have to correct as a society, is we've stopped doing everything for ourselves. We don't take pictures for ourselves anymore. We take pictures to post them, to share them. And art starts with you doing it for yourself because you feel drawn or called to. It's your service. Mm. It's your, as Abdu'l-Bahá says, you're at, the painter with his paintbrush is like as if he were at prayer in the temple. It's the, it is your gift coming through you to the world, despite or independent of outcome. Mm. And we just have to, I think as a culture, stop doing everything for everybody else and then beating ourselves up about it, you know, because it's the Pavlovian like response we have to likes and shares and followers and people and whether they care about us or not. Like I sometimes wish I could go back to, 70 years ago or 50 years ago, even, or a hundred years ago, and what it was like, what would it be like to be an artist and to be of service then when it was only you that could find out or, or know the most rewarding mm-hmm. things I've ever done in my life. Nobody ever knows about yep. service, the service that I'm the most proud of. Nobody knows about, nobody needs to know about mm-hmm. 60% of everything I do. Nobody will ever know about. That's what I hold on to. Mm-hmm. And I just hope that I can get to a place where all of us can get to a place where then 
when we put the stuff out there in the world, if it's not received, it doesn't affect us because we're so full already. And that's what I'm trying to get to and where I hope to get to in my life is that, that place. Enlightenment. <laughs> Comfort and belief that I'm enough, regardless of what anybody else says or does mm. or how they respond to my work. Personal enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Enlightenment, that carrot, that dangling carrot. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Sushi, are you going to ask the million dollar question? Yes. So Justin, we've been ending all our episodes asking the same question, which is, is there anything that you thought that you would have seen in the world that hasn't happened yet that you thought would happen by now or that you would hope would have happened by now? The funny, not so serious answer is flying cars. Duh. <laughs> Back to the future. Hello. <laughs> Like we're past all of it. Totally. Um, hoverboards. <laughs> a female president. Mm -hmm. I think a part of me really thought we would have figured out how not to have war. Mm -hmm. I think as a kid, I was like, oh, we'll figure that out one day. <laughs> but yeah, we're not quite there yet. But hoverboards for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Justin, did you know that at one time, Melody thought what she was going to design would be cars? Mm. So, Smooshy, get on this one. This is not so different. Mm, I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> 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 one day, maybe one day. It's okay. I, I figured if, if all this doesn't work out, I'll just, the art I also like to create is food. So, I'll just be a chef. Yeah. Mm. I don't think being a chef is that different from being a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I get that. I don't think creating one thing is that different from creating another Anything. thing once you understand the dynamics involved. Yeah. You know? So our inspiration comes from that frequency. We've got to tune into that frequency. Let's do it, guys. Yes. Vibrate higher. Awesome talking to you guys. Thank you so much, Justin. Good to be Thank together. You. So good Let's to be not together. wait so long to do another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just hang out in person where nobody will hear it except us. <laughs> and that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find the Butterfly Forecast every Tuesday with a new episode available wherever you do your podcasting. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Hope to see you then. We'll see you next time. Thank you.